You are listening to another No Fair Remembering Stuff, the Tuesday edition of the Professional Left Podcast, and available wherever you get your podcasts, and at our website, proleftpod.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There is a Patreon button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution at the Professional Left Podcast, P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. And it's not safe for work. This week, we're going to talk about the Watts Riots, also known as the Watts Rebellion and or Watts Uprising. And it's going to be a bit of an adventure for us because uh, this is not an event about which we are well-versed. We'll also discuss the much more subjective matter of how we come to know what we know and how we come to believe what we believe. Here's how the Watts Riots facts were explained in a CBS News documentary made in 1965. And please be aware that the word Negro was considered at the time the appropriate name for a black person. It began as many race riots have begun with the arrest of a Negro by white officers. In this case, two young Negroes were stopped by California highway patrolmen and charged with drunk driving. There was a scuffle and a crowd gathered. The mother of the two, their brothers, joined in, and she and another woman the crowd thought was pregnant were pushed and shoved. Over and over, Negroes repeat the charge of police brutality. One who had pressed a number of brutality complaints and one of the most successful attorneys in Los Angeles is a Negro, Leo Branton. We asked him about the police claim that brutality charges are fully and fairly investigated. Well, in theory, there are avenues of complaint open. But there are no meaningful avenues uh, uh, to redress the grievances of these people. I've tried them all, and I can say to you that there is no question but that under the present machinery as it exists and as it is being operated today, a complaint of police brutality by any Negro citizen goes almost completely unheeded. And as we dive into this piece of American history, we are keenly aware of a few things. First of all, we are two white middle-aged suburbanites talking about this, and that makes it suspect. Um, We didn't live through the experience of the Watts uprising, and we had to research the details to find out why it happened, what happened. But it interested us to do that. And we knew from what we did know about the Watts riots that it had uh, relevance to today. A profound impact on the time and some resonance today. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And, and we can reflect on it and the changes that have happened since and the things that haven't changed. Um, secondly, we're also keenly aware of the cultural changes that technology has made possible. I mean, we're sitting here podcasting. Um, that didn't happen in 1965. So this is, this is something that we want to consider. Um, and third, the effect that local elected officials can have on a community, on events, on how your own community reacts to events, improving the things or making them worse. The importance of local officials is a big part of this story. Mm-hmm. But let's start with the basics. The Watts riots took place in the Watts neighborhood and its surrounding areas of Los Angeles over the course of nearly a week, from August 11th to 16th, 1965. Despite what they are called, the riots did not begin in Watts, nor were they limited to Watts. Now, this is the remarkable thing about the Watts riots is its scope geographically is just amazing. Damage occurred in a 46.5 square mile zone. Yeah. Where Watts is only a little over two square miles of the total. Mm -hmm. On August 11th, 1965, a 21-year-old African-American man named Marquette Fry was pulled over for drunken driving. He failed a field sobriety test, and LAPD officers, who obviously were white, uh, mm-hmm. attempted to arrest him. He resisted arrest, and with some help from his mother, Rena Fry, who had come to the lo- that location, there was a physical confrontation 
during which one of the cops hit Marquette in the face with a baton. Meanwhile, a crowd had gathered and rumors began to spread, which might as well be the copy-paste introduction to how every riot, uprising, and revolution begins. There was a confrontation, a crowd, and rumors, and conditions which had been deteriorating for years that made the rumors seem plausible. In this case, the rumor was that the police had kicked a pregnant woman who was part of the crowd present at the scene. Mm -hmm. Six days of civil unrest followed, motivated in part by allegations of police abuse. Nearly 14,000 members of the California Army National Guard were called in by white officials to help suppress the disturbance. In the end, 34 people died and over $40 million in property damage happened. $40 million in 1965 dollars. This would be the city's worst unrest until the Rodney King riots of 1992. Uh, and there are strong echoes of the Watts riots during the Rodney King riots. Yeah. Except, and we're going to get to this a little bit later, there was a camera present for the Rodney King riots. Right. Um, so when you look a little deeper into what happened during that week in August and why it happened, you do begin to see things that look very familiar. You see a power structure in which racial discrimination has been built into the structure of the system. It just is there, it's present, it's it's everywhere, and it, it's helping to run the system. You see a policing system that tolerated and even encouraged abuse. You see a media that routinely took the establishment line. You know, whatever the cops say, probably true. And you see a rising political right that looked at the riots and the student movements and saw a golden opportunity to seize power. Uh, this is from JSTOR Daily, which goes into some depth about the deep connection between the story the media was telling about the riots, which was a story that white Californians really wanted to hear, and what the residents of the Watts neighborhood themselves were saying. And just quick correction there. This is a disconnect, not a connect. Or let's say right. connect. I, I apologize. A deep yeah. disconnect. Uh, yeah, it, it uh, yeah, the opposite <laughs> of what I just said. Thank you. Uh, quote, David O. Sears and T.M. Tomlinson wrote in a 1968 paper, a media narrative quickly developed. Watts rioters represented a tiny fraction of the neighborhood. They were reviled by the majority of law-abiding citizen. The riots were a meaningless outburst of destruction that left most locals worried about the neighborhood's future. But... When researchers went out and actually talked with people in the neighborhood, unheard of, I know, actually went out and talked to the people who went through this, they found a very different story. Looking at the interviews with 586 black adults who lived within the curfew zone that marked the areas of the riots, Sears and Tomlinson found that 22% said they'd been at least somewhat involved in the unrest. 56% said the unrest had a purpose or goal. And 58% expected it to have a favorable outcome, have uh, favorable effects. And while 50% said their overall feelings about the riot was unfavorable, more than a quarter reported feeling favorably about them. Even among those who were unhappy that the riots had happened, 75% described it in terms like a shame or a sad thing, while only a quarter used words suggesting blame, like disgrace, unnecessary, or senseless. The difference in response between black people in the Watts area and whites nearby was striking. While 75% of white Los Angeles County residents said the riots, quote, hurt the Negro cause, unquote, only 24% of curfew zone residents said the same. Indeed, only 46% of the local residents identified the event as a riot at all, while 38% said it was a revolt, revolution, or insurrection. People who were arrested in the violence were particularly likely to use those more politicized terms. Similarly, about two-thirds of the white groups thought the authorities handled the situation well. While, surprise, surprise, two-thirds of the local black groups said they did a bad job, unquote. While the Watts riots made for shocking headline news around the world, the conditions that led to the riots, discrimination, official neglect, poverty, and police abuse had been coming to a boil for decades. Los Angeles had racially restrictive covenants that blocked specific minorities from renting and buying property in certain areas, 
even long after the courts ruled such practices illegal in 1948 and they passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There were still restrictions. In the 1910s, the city was already 80% covered by racially restrictive covenants in real estate. And by the 1940s, 95% of Los Angeles and Southern California housing was off limits to certain minorities. When World War II ended, minorities who had served or worked in LA's defense industries found that they faced worsening discrimination in housing. They also found themselves locked out of LA's suburbs and restricted to housing in East or South Los Angeles, which includes the Watts neighborhood and Compton. Those same racist real estate practices also restricted educational and economic opportunities available to the minority community. Remember, this was during the post-war housing shortages, when the GI Bill was funding the whites-only middle-class boom. Suburban communities were growing incredibly fast and promising families good schools and gracious living, but in most cases only for white families. Mm-hmm. And, and housing discrimination wasn't the only racist and self-destructive local policy decision that contributed to the conditions that led to the riots. Los Angeles Mayor Sam Yorty, who was a Democrat in name only, did not want unelected black people spending taxpayer monies on poverty programs. This is from Time Magazine, Poverty, Progress, Protests, and Politics from just before the riots. This is from July 6th, 1965. Quote, I would guess, says anti-poverty director Sergeant Shriver on his nine-month-old Office of Economic Opportunity, that no federal government program in peacetime has ever gone so far, so fast, or ever zeroed in so well. With $783 million allocated and another $1.5 billion requested, the anti-poverty program has indeed gone a long way in a short time. Now, by Shriver's count, it directly affects 1,735,000 people. How well it has zeroed in is a question that is being debated throughout much of the United States. However, in Los Angeles, Democratic Mayor Sam Yorty has turned down OEO demands that he accept representatives of minority groups, private welfare agencies, and the poor on his anti-poverty board. So no poor people are going to serve on anti-poverty boards because that's just crazy, which administers the program. To do so, says Yorty, would be to give non-elected private citizens the power to determine public policy and spend public money. Anti-poverty officials in Washington, who under the 1964 Economic Opportunity Act are authorized to channel federal funds to private groups, are withholding $22 million in funds from Los Angeles, unquote. Remember, this is just a month before the riots. I think it's important to insert here, too, that this is what LBJ got out of the Kennedy assassination and him coming into power Uh with a tremendous amount of goodwill and people in mourning over JFK dying. And what he did was start to turn on the spigot about poverty. He cared Uh about poverty. Uh And it is so unfortunate that his old-fashioned stance on communism, that dragged him into Vietnam and made him stay there, uh, tarnished his reputation because LBJ's war on poverty um, was was amazing and uh-huh. transformed this country for a short time. Yes, it did. Uh, but people like Sam Yorty were the problem and were, were real roadblocks toward progress. And, and it cost him. And we see how with the Watts riots. Well, and, and, and this it's is, also... It also serves to mention that um, LPJ had supermajorities in Congress. Both co- both houses, were, exactly. Were, and, and even though his um, uh, segregationist friends in the Democratic Party yeah. uh, didn't like a lot of what he was doing, he had Republican allies from the North who, would, who are willing to vote for these things. Yep. LBJ was able to get through legislation in ways that Democratic presidents since simply have not because of Republican obstructionism. This was right. – million in money, 1.5 billion promised in 1964 dollars. Right, amazing, incredible amount of money. Absolutely amazing. Yep. At a time, I should remind us that our country was running a surplus, that we were a creditor nation, 
that we yeah. had, were having an economic boom until Reagan came along and pissed that all away. Anyway. That's another story go. for another day. And we yes, should do a show on Reagan, Reaganomics for sure. Well, we're going to take a lot of the components of this and we're going to get to uh, Joe Pine in a minute. We're going to talk about Joe Pine uh, to <laughs> to uh, a much greater extent on a future episode of this show. Yeah. But for now. Yeah. So this was a retrospective on the Watts riots from Knock LA in 2020. On this day, Watts spiraled into flames at the hands of the LAPD as Mayor Yorty blamed communists for sowing black resentment. Yeah, they just because, love you know, without people. the communists, yeah. blacks would just be perfectly fine with everything. Communists like Barack Obama and Joe Biden, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. This is, again, Knock LA 2020. 55 years ago, the material gains of a summer celebrated for its record-setting economy led to prosperity for whites. However, these material gains missed black youth in Watts and South Los Angeles when then-Mayor Yorty went rogue. In violation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act's Maximum Feasible Participation Clause, which sought to give local elected working-class community members an active role in community development programs, Mayor Yorty refused to create an official set of anti-poverty programs in areas such as Watts, South Central, or the Chicano East Side of Los Angeles. At the same time, LAPD officers in 1965 virtually resembled the white Southern segregationists. And in fact, many of those cops came from the South as with the 77th Street Division of the LAPD. Officers in the de facto segregated south side of Los Angeles regularly harassed black folks living there with jail, fines, and even worse indignation, unquote. During this time, LA was beefing up its scandal-plagued police department, professionalizing it, and also militarizing it. Most white Angelinos approved and supported the changes, and why not? After all, they were never going to be arbitrarily beaten or jailed on bullshit charges or shot. To them, the LAPD was... This is the city. Los Angeles, California. I work here. I'm a cop. Yep, it was Dragnet, which was, let's face it, an LAPD-approved propaganda outlet about the Los Angeles Police Department. Yeah, and how awesome they were. It premiered on radio in 1949, moved to television from 1951 to 1959, and was revised and brought back to TV from 1967 to 1970. Weird how those of you who wanted to watch hippie punching on television. Yeah, Yeah, those hippies, (laughs) that pot smoking that will lead to acid and then God knows what. And you want that crew cut wearing Joe Friday. Joe Friday locking up bad guys. Many of them had long hair, those bad guys. Mm -hmm. Keep the peace. And he never raised his voice. Mm -hmm. He was just the white cop there to keep order. All he wanted was the facts, just the facts, man. Yeah. And all of these factors, racism, housing, economic discrimination, overly aggressive police to keep minorities in line and to keep them locked in their physical location. Mm -hmm. All this stuff was on a collision course. It's also August, so it's hot and awful. And all of this was just waiting for the right combination of that summer heat, police overreaction and rumor to put a match to the dry tinder of decades of resentment, frustration, and anger. The city was burning, literally burning. Set fire, burned to the ground. 46 square miles burned to the ground. Well, not, I mean, there was damage across 46 square miles. Right, right. It was, yeah. But 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 when you look at the tapes, it was was horrible. And it was a week. I mean, it wasn't like a riot in, in the evening and the police had under control or people went home. This went on for six days. Mm-hmm. And it, the question was, is it going to stop? And, mm-hmm. you know, and this is 1965. Just the, the turmoil of the time and the, the Vietnam War 
and the recent assassination of John F. Kennedy, all of the sense that things were coming apart in this country. And what is sometimes forgotten about California culture and politics during the 60s was how incredibly conservative it was. You just don't think of California as that bastion of conservatism, but relative to the rest of the country during the 60s, California was like the Florida of that era, which gave rise to right-wing media creatures like the aforementioned Joe Pine. Because before there was Bill O'Reilly or Glenn Beck or Morton Downey Jr. or Michael Savage, there was Joe Pine. Joe Pine was a radio host until the 1950s when radio began to lose out to TV and Pine moved along with it from WDEL-TV in Wilmington, Delaware, where he was unsuccessful. Then he moved to L.A., and he failed there. Then he moved back to Wilmington, where he did a little bit better this time. Then he went on to do a bit of Canadian radio and then back to L.A., where he was much more successful this time. And by 1960, first on radio and then back to TV on KTTV in Los Angeles. This is from Wikipedia. Quote, in 1965, during the Watts riots in L.A., Pine was interviewing a black militant on his TV show. At one point, Pine opened his coat to reveal that he was carrying a handgun. His guest did likewise. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And you thought Geraldo was bad. The yeah. station suspended Pine for one week, and as a result of this stunt, which led to both the FCC considering pulling a KTTV's license and syndication companies looking at distribution uh, distributing Pine's show nationally. Did that stop Joe Pine? No, it did not. Because later that year, the Joe Pine show went into national syndication, carried by as many as 85 television stations and 250 radio stations at its peak. At the height of his fame, Joe Pine was making $200,000 annually, which again, in those days, money was a lot of money. So what, Joe Pine, was he a right-wing asshole or was he? Yes, he was the original right-wing asshole. Okay. He was a little bit different than today's right-wing assholes. I mean, he was pro-labor union and he did speak out against racial discrimination, uh, but he was the he was the confrontational guy. He'd have Klansmen on. He challenged people as communists. You know, he 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 wanted conflict on camera. He wanted angry people yelling on camera. That's what his shtick was. That, yeah. So he was he was a pioneer in that kind oh, of thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And people watched it, and people remember yeah. him to this day. Uh, he he supported the Vietnam War. He ridiculed hippies, which were one of his favorite targets. He hated homosexuals and feminists. And again, back to Wikipedia, though generally conservative, Pine spoke in favor of labor unions. His tendency towards insult and vitriol offended most critics who called him outrageous, belligerent, and self-righteous. Groups such as the Anti-Defamation League accused him of catering to bigots, unquote. Now remember, this: all of this was happening at the same time that students at UC Berkeley, right down the road, were ramping up their 1964-65 free speech movement. That was when students insisted that the university administration lift the ban of on-campus political activities and acknowledge what? the students' rights. Yeah. It's, there was a ban on on-campus yep. student political activities. Yep. yep. Ah! During, during a time, it's almost impossible to imagine now, but during a time when you had civil rights marches, you had political assassinations, you had the Vietnam War, you had obvious discrimination, racial discrimination. You had you had the South being exposed as the racist shithole that it was. You had people marching for civil rights. Students, you know, students who were approximately the same age as our kids now, who were yeah. politically active on campus, were being told you can't do campus, you can't do politics on campus. And which is insane, which is just insane. But that that was the rule and they protested against it. They had a free speech movement. Um and the, the right to free speech and academic freedom. Now, in 1969, there was a five-month campus strike to demand the elimination of admissions practices that mostly excluded students of color. That was the cauldron of California and national politics during the time and after the Watts riots period. And, and let's not forget, you're talking about a state school, too. Exactly. You're exactly. talking about taxpayer-funded discrimination. Mm-hmm. At UC Berkeley. Berkeley. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm Berkeley. stunned. I'm just like. Yeah. Berkeley. But, but, that, but remember. Wasn't allowing that was, a lot of black people in. Okay. But that, that was the argument by the conservatives, which was, yeah. this is taxpayer funded education. These kids, these damn hippies got no right taking our tax money and, you know, walking around. And using with it to register just, black people. To well, yeah, that's what they meant. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> protesting the war and smoking pot and having sex, right. which none of which they approved right. of. Right. 
So yeah, it was a big deal. It was, it was, this was the nexus of the next 30 years of politics happening right here. And the Watts riot was right there in the middle of it. Right there in the middle of it. And so the Watts riots and the student unrest at places like UC Berkeley proved to be a political gold mine for California conservatives like Ronald Reagan. From the LA Times, August 6, 2015, quote, Watts riots shifted state to the right, but new demographics pushed it left. The embers of Watts had cooled as Ronald Reagan raced toward his first election as California's governor, a year after riots scarred southern Los Angeles. Yet Watts remained an ominous political presence. As Reagan took on two-term incumbent Pat Brown in what was then an overwhelmingly white and culturally conservative state, Watts and other emblems of the era, civil rights battles, Vietnam War protests, and counterculture elbow-throwing, contributed to a frightening sense that California was spinning out of control. Mm -hmm. The backlash spread beyond California's borders as well. Two years after Reagan won the governorship, the same political winds helped propel Richard Nixon to the presidency. Another beneficiary of an electorate worried about societal change and choosing the candidate who took a law and order approach. The border. The border. White people. Yeah. White older people in control, right? Mm -hmm. The Republican Party, buoyed by those put off by Democratic views on civil rights and the war, saw its ranks grow nationally. It's it's hard to believe. Looking back on it, history was not kind to them, but Mm -hmm. at the time, that was what was going on. Well, and, and just, I mean take all of this and transpose it into the modern political context. And it's the MAGA movement. It's It's MAGA MAGA Republicans, you know, terrified old white people who hate hippies and communists and are afraid of Brown people. And the the whole country's going to hell blue gal. They're taking Mm -hmm. our stoves and our, and our light bulbs. And they're going to make us punch (laughs) two for English for God's sakes. Well, don't worry. You know, I can fix the whole thing. Only I can fix it. We're, we're the MAGA people, uh, draft avoiders or Vietnam veterans or, or are they slightly older than that? Do you oh, think? I, well, uh, a lot of the folks around here that I see with MAGA trucks, several of them wear Vietnam vet hats. Yeah. Yeah. You know? uh-huh. yeah. So yeah, no, yeah. this, this goes back a while, but it, the same impulse just mm-hmm. never leaves. It's yeah. I'm terrified of change. I'm terrified. People are going to cover my stuff. I have my life where I want it to be. I feel like I've been cheated. I feel like those people are getting stuff I should be getting. And they don't know how to control themselves. And, 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 and the country's going out of control. Everything's nuts. Kids are smoking pot. And, and there are trans people out there now. Yeah. And we yeah. had a black president. I mean, my we had- did we lose a war, Blue Gal? <laughs> and so, you know, they, yeah. they, they react like they always react in, in the way that they always react, which is yeah. massive backlash. Find the this biggest love. This is different loudest- from when I was a kid and I don't like it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. They find the biggest, yeah. loudest racist around, and they say, this guy will save us. And in, in this case, yeah. it was Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So Watts was a, quote, turning point in a year of turning points and one of the most important, said James T. Patterson, an emeritus history professor at Brown University and author of The Eve of Destruction, a book about the American transformation wrought in 1965, unquote. All right. So third... Let's take a quick look at how technology changed the game. In 1965, cell phone cameras and police body cams and so forth were pure science fiction. Today, they are ubiquitous everywhere. You can never get away from them. And today, those who hold the cameras can tell the story. This is 1965 versus 2021. Compare and contrast the 1965 Watts to 2021 George Floyd protests. The George Floyd protests... June 6, 2021, were the largest protests in the history of the United States. Small towns got involved and had car parades through their town squares and black neighborhoods. We had them in Springfield. The Day of Action here was organized on the internet. In Springfield, Illinois, the only police visible that day uh, were directing traffic. Everyone got along fine. And while nothing can bring George Floyd back, the police brutality is still a thing in America. That's a fact. In this case, Justice was, in fact, served. The cop who killed George Floyd is now in prison for murder. 
1965, all of that organized protest, peaceful protest, and the cop, the bad cop being caught and put in prison, that would not only have been science fiction, it would have been bad science fiction, unbelievable science fiction. Now, culture also changes. The riots led to five-time re-elected black mayor Tom Bradley, who was mayor of L.A. for 20 years, which was longer than anybody else ever. This is also from that 2015 L.A. Times retrospective. Quote, Voters reacted to the chaos by embracing a new wave of conservatism that swept Reagan into the governor's office and paved his way to the White House. In California, the conservative tide would rise for a generation. Reagan begat George Duckmagian and Pete Wilson, 24 years of Republican governors in a 32-year stretch. Yet 50 years hence, the impact of Watts on California politics is negligible. Massive demographic changes have utterly remade the state sweeping aside the era's Republican gains, unquote. So yay, yay for us, yay for demographics. Finally, we come to the very subjective matter of how do we come to know these stories? Uh, How do you and I, as middle-aged, suburban, white people, know about these stories at all? Because I was four years old at the time, and I was living in the smallest town in Iowa you have never heard of. Now, how small was that town? When I was in Iowa on business in that area many years ago, I went by the old place and it was like walking onto the set of the pilot of The Twilight Zone, which was the Where Is Everybody episode where Earl Holloman returns to his hometown to find it recently abandoned. And by recently, I mean just a few minutes prior. There are cigars still smoldering in the ashtrays and music and voices are coming from the shops. But when he investigates, there is no one there. And that is exactly my experience when I went back to visit Grandview, Iowa. There was no one to be found anywhere. The town's one restaurant was open. Door was unlocked. There were some jackets hung up on the rack. There was steam coming from the kitchen, but there was nobody anywhere. Ditto the little store where I'd once gotten into trouble pretending that a piece of cardboard that I'd written my name on was a credit card. Turns out it wasn't a credit card. And the guy who ran the store called my mom and I was in deep, deep trouble. And that Roosevelt-era school where my mom taught wasn't just empty, but it was abandoned, long abandoned. The doors were actually open. So I went in, and it was just sad, incredibly sad. Classroom furniture covered with plastic tarp that had gone cracked and yellow and curly with age. The gym was empty, and the wooden floors deeply scuffed from some long-ago time when it was used for indoor horseshoes. There was a trophy case still full of rusting metals and statues from decades ago, and a half-melted sugar cube replica of the state capital of Iowa that someone had put a whole lot of time and effort into building in 1969. Might have been my sister. I don't know. But back in 1965, this had been a tiny farming town of around 300 people when I lived there. As far from Los Angeles and the experiences of Black America as if we'd been living on Mars. So, what about you, Blue Gal? What sort of subversive shit were you up to in 1965? Yeah, Bomb throwing subversive I turned nonsense. two in 1965. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I was probably still in diapers at that point. <laughs> um, but I lived in Kent, Ohio. And uh-huh. Kent State became a politically involved uh, place in May 4th of 1970. Mm-hmm. Um, before that... Uh, there were hippies, of course. Uh, my dad and mom were uh, in the art department at Kent State. My grandfather, my mother's father, was in the math department at Kent State, and he retired somewhere around 1969, 1970. When he retired from Kent State University's math department, he was the only professor in the math department on record as opposing the Vietnam War because the math department was quite conservative. Uh, the art department where my parents were, uh, my <laughs> mother was a student and my dad was a professor, uh, you know, totally different story, full of hippies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was, um, so I, I mean, I woke up to political activism and so forth, uh, being aware as a first grader that something had happened in my town and that we were on the news and that the National Guard had come to the campus where my dad worked and shot students. And that was, that was an awakening, you know, that was sort of my formative, 
moment of political action. So um, I Watts, I didn't, I was two. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was two. So exactly. Uh, and, and there were no uh, black students in my school in Kent, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, there were black students on campus. There were black students. Uh, there were black professors in the art department at that time. I believe. So yeah, it was uh, uh, a little bit of, of awareness of mm-hmm. the black experience, but not nothing like I didn't have any black friends until college. Yeah. So, so we're, we're not literally in our own lifetime forgetting Watts right. because right. we weren't aware of it at all at the time. Right. We were, as, we were, as I was little white children. In yeah, the 60s. I was, yeah. I was four years old. You were two. I mean, that yeah. that's just ridiculous. But so the question then comes to uh, how did we absorb these stories? Because <laughs> there are people in this world right now who the Rots riots were those people burning down their own neighborhoods because they're no good and they're animals. They don't know what they're doing and right. you just can't trust them. And they're a bunch of law-breaking communists, right? Right. And I am obviously of the diametrically opposed opinion. So how did I come to believe what I believe? How did I come to understand this and now haul it back out of the history book to talk about it? What happened in our lives that made us believe one set of stories over another? And mm-hmm. in my case, it was coming back from overseas. We lived in the Philippines for a couple of years, and that was a fascinating experience. We lived in Park Forest until I moved out on my own when I was about 19. And Park Forest was a meticulously planned community. The streets were all planned. The housings were all, everything was done from a blueprint from the schools to the plaza, everything, everything done. It was so well-ordered that it merited its own chapter in the book called the organization man, which was the big 1960s book on how executives and towns and so forth were being built. Now, by and large in park forest, men worked in Chicago, right? They commuted to Chicago. They were suburban people. They commuted to Chicago and the women stayed home and tended to the families, and everyone had 2.5 kids. We had three. They actually had three, but that was it. If you visited uh, the white, the, I'm sorry, if you visit the Park Forest homepage now, the Facebook page, uh, people who live there, who grew up in Park Forest, you'll see it described by the longtime residents as like a virtual utopia. This was a bastion of civic virtue and racial harmony at the far end of uh, the suburban track for the Illinois Central Gulf commuter line. It was awesome. And you know what? For most of the overwhelming majority, the white majority, I'm sure it was. I'm sure that was their experience. That said, one member of the group also shared some photos of a different kind of park forest. This was photos of a yellow document called, and I'm not kidding, this is the actual title, Negroes in Park Forest from 1959 to 1968 by date and occupancy. And it's just what it says it is. It is Black families who bought homes in town listed on a list, a secret list in the order that they bought their homes. And there's also a little W designation on five families to indicate which were the mixed race couples because they wanted to keep track of that too. This corresponded to a color-coded map that was kept in City Hall secretly uh, that identified people's homes by race. That's not part of the story of Park Forest that most people who live there understood or ever heard of. Mm-hmm. I'm familiar mm-hmm. with that part of the story because our next door neighbor was one of the families on the list. And their dad, Mr. C, who was also my former father-in-law, was the man who crashed a secret village hall meeting where that map was on display and put the word out of its existence. Hey, everybody, there's this map and this list of where all the black people live in Park Forest. That's not great, is it? And a couple of days later... And this was an official map. I mean, I think that's oh, yeah. the important thing is that the City wall. Hall was putting out this map for their use in Absolutely. some way. This was, this was the real estate people and the City Hall keeping track of the names of everybody, what their relationships were, uh, yeah. whether they were living this or dead. This wasn't the Klan or a Citizens Council. No. This was City Hall doing this. This is City Hall. Yeah. And uh, a couple of days after he outed this thing, somehow he landed in the hospital with a shattered jaw which is wired shut and was, he was up for a couple of weeks and for the next eight years or so, there was almost always a police car parked across the street from our houses, which, you know, when I got to be a teenager, seriously. And the purpose of the police car across the street from your house was protection, I take it. Oh yeah. Cause now we're clear what's going on here Yeah, and they cannot have this happen again. 
Yeah. yeah. Uh, it impeded the parties I used to throw when my mom was in Chicago somewhat, uh, having a cop <laughs> sitting across the street. And you married the but girl next door, literally. I did. I did. Yeah. And so yeah. um, now my sister, who was seven years older than me, will tell you that she owes her political education to Mr. C, who not only talked to her like a grown-up, but he was also a civil rights organizer. They had moved down here yeah. from Chicago when a tornado destroyed their house. And he was very active civically. He was a civil rights organizer. He had friends in all the black civil rights groups. And he was her introduction to the civil rights movement in history, the personal narrative that he brought to the table. This is what happened. This is why it happened. This is what's going on and so forth. And so as kids, I remember visits to Chicago, which are always very exciting to go to like the Ice Capades and Brookfield Zoo, but also going to at least one Black Panther pancake breakfast. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember being around Black families during cookouts and in church. And it was just normal for us. This is something that we just thought, you know, we were neighbors. Neighbors are neighbors. These are their friends. They're our friends. But you see, the fears of the Ku Klux Klan were well-founded, perfectly justified. Familiarity destroys racism. It is the enemy of racism. And since I knew these people and my parents liked them and trusted them, and sometimes their mom looked after us, and sometimes our mom looked after them, uh, brief story, the very first thing my mom ever said to our next door neighbor, the neighbor lady, when they moved in, she walked over to their house, knocked on their door because that's what my mom used to do. And the first thing she asked my next door neighbor, who was going to be my mother-in-law one day, my ex-mother-in-law was, do you work? And my next door neighbor thought, great, here's a fucking white lady. First question out of her mouth was, you know, are you employed? Are you respectable? And my mom could see that she took it like the wrong way. She goes, oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I just meant I have kids who are going to be home. I teach. I need someone who can maybe give them lunch. And I just thought since we're neighbors, could they come over to your house for lunch every now and then? Oh, that is a very different thing than challenging someone right up front about whether or not they're employed and respectable. Mm-hmm. And turns out the next door neighbor was also a teacher, so that didn't work out nearly as well as my mom had hoped it was. But they became friends, friends forever. And I just grew up believing the stories I heard from them. And I began to be willing to listen to the experiences of people outside my own tribe. These were people who I had a lot in common with, who I trusted, who I played with, and who I cooked out with in the backyard, and who invited me into secret stuff. And just like other kids like me, but they were being raised, the kids other than me were being raised in very different families, where racism and the N-words were the norm. And they came up believing very different stories. And they were hostile to the experiences of people outside their tribes. And that's the difference, I believe. When you have your mind opened up to the narrative of outside groups when you're little, when you're young, Mm -hmm. and you realize there's a whole different universe of stories out there that are not the ones that you're being taught in school or in church, you start noticing that history isn't necessarily what you were taught. And eventually you end up with Howard Zinn on your dining room table reading about (laughs) the secret history of the United States. Now, it wasn't until many years later I heard any of this. Because that's the sort of thing parents just didn't talk about. Our parents didn't talk about Watts. Their parents didn't talk about Watts. They talked about playing. They talked about cookouts. But it was stuff that they talked about among themselves. I knew that a lot of our neighbors, for example, really, really didn't like our family. But it wasn't until much later that I found out about racism and resentment and contempt and why were you friends with this family that was Mm -hmm. bubbling just below the surface of that town that I grew up in the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that's my story. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. not the history of Watts. That's the history of how I came to understand and believe the narrative that this was a deprived community, that there are things called police abuse, that there were things like housing discrimination that were real. They affected people just like my neighbors. Mm-hmm. And of course they got pissed off. Of course, how would you feel if that happened to you? Yeah. And yeah. being able to identify with people who aren't you, who don't look like you, but but are kind and friendly and open and welcoming, who are just like your family in so many other ways, is what opens you up to be able to understand other people's narratives and have them understand yours and not hate each other right out of the box. So one of the things I wanted to bring up at the end of this podcast is how I came about deciding, because this was my idea, that we should talk about the Watts riots. Yes. And 
it was not. It came to me much later in the process of realizing that this is Black History Month. Um, you and I had been talking about this for a couple of days and I went, oh, and by the way, it's two white people talking about this on, during Black History right. Month. Right. And and to me, though, this is this is really what Black History Month is about, is reminding our media and our culture and ourselves mm-hmm. that there is a whole set of stories to be told. And you always talk about Drift Glass, who tells the story, who gets to tell the story. And right. what story is told is is power. Right. And so it is really important that we have this reminder, not just not that we tell black stories or black history just one month out of the year. No. But that that during that one month there is a reminder that these stories exist and and that we should pay attention and that these stories need to be told, not just among black people, but in our culture and in our media. And of course, we are the media drift class. So we are the liberal media. There you go. It is our job. <laughs> it is and our this job. Is, this is called no fair remembering stuff. And I think it's George Orwell who said, "Who he who controls the past controls the future." Yeah. I mean, yeah. Really, it you know the people who history is a fight over history, over who gets it to is. define, it is. over who Absolutely. gets to define who's who who won. You know, and you have Roman emperors who are like scratching their predecessors' names out. And wiping mm-hmm. them out of history because they don't exist anymore. You had um, the 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 city the the city of Carthage just obliterated from the map because Romans didn't want it to exist anymore. Right. The goal right. of Nazi Germany was to wipe the Jews from history, eliminate mm-hmm. them from history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yep. and that's you know, and the dark side. Well, that's pretty dark. But the in our country, the purpose of Confederate statues was to yeah. create a completely bullshit narrative of their despicable traitorous cause and make it out to be heroic. Yeah. And like, we never, yeah. we never really lost. And these men were all heroes and that's what we're going to celebrate. And those statues did not go up after the civil war. They went no. up at the beginning of the <laughs> civil rights 1965, era. 1965, the year yeah. of Watts. Yes. They, they went up as a big fuck you to the people who were trying to pass civil rights legislation. And they were always right. intended to be that, but it was always intended to be who gets to control the narrative. And, and that's the thing about being raised when we were and and how we were, which is mm-hmm. we were um, receptive to stories about this country that a lot of our people who were our peers weren't. I mm-hmm. by all rights, I should be some MAGA asshole, you know? Right? I, yeah. I, no. I have all right. the I check all the boxes, but I'm not, and I, I have to put that down to. The way I was raised and the people I knew when I was growing up and the people who helped raise me and the experiences my family had that were different mm-hmm. than all the all my peers. And I wanted to talk for a minute about a Photoshop I did years ago mm-hmm. where um, it was a picture of, do you remember in the 60s, the monk who set fire to himself? Yes, I do. Yes. In yes, the I middle do. of the street. Yep. And I did a Photoshop of that happening and then a cell phone in front of it and the person making a video mm-hmm. of the monk burning himself. Mm-hmm. And it made it immediate because, oh, look, it's this modern cell phone taping something from not the 60s. But it also made it much smaller. There was, yes. there was, a, there was a sense that, you know, here is this tiny camera taking a picture of this very huge event. And mm-hmm. and the who is the viewer and why are they filming it? And I think about that when oh well if we'd had cameras if we if everybody had a cell phone at Watts well they'd mm-hmm. all be taking video so they could get it on what Maury Povich so they could get it on you know cops or you know it all of these people that want we we've learned about this and talked about it before all these people white people who expressed outrage or, or anytime something bad happened to them, thought they were going to get on Tucker Carlson because they're right. white and they're being oppressed. And that's right. the, the prize. That's the, the, we always say that's the lottery. That was the lottery. You get to be on Tucker. And so I, I think about that when I think about, yes, cell phone cameras and cell phone and, and video of Rodney King getting beaten, you know, that changed the world that changed the way people around the country saw cop violence against black men Mm -hmm. and uh you know 
the call for justice and the violence that ensued. It, and, and it's important to remember, it did, the violence didn't happen when Rodney King was beaten. The violence nope. happened when the cops got off. Yep. Cops got Absolutely. off because they had a white jury. And so, I mean, all of that came, came about. Uh, we, you know, we could do a whole podcast about that as well. Um, and, and then I also want to talk about the fact that there were cameras in the 60s. Selma, the, the cops attacking the marchers at Selma for the first uh-huh. march, there were TV cameras there. And that there was were. broadcast all over the country. And so the second march that happened, the, the, the one that, that went through, uh, had the world watching. That's right. And, and that changed the behavior of the cops. Did. And also, that's, also there were nuns in the front row. I mean, well, come on. And, and that's 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 the other thing. The the that's cameras, the, thing. the cameras that we're talking about from the nineteen sixties. In case you weren't there, like we were, you know, <laughs> the the old kinescopes. You'd have to crank them, and you'd only get. Oh, my aching back. <laughs> no, the, the the cameras we're talking about are not you know not video cameras. They're cameras that that produce chemical films that have to be developed yeah. and flown to the right. lab and da 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 da. But the 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 people who were planning marches um, were not fools. They knew that you know the South was the message wasn't getting out. You know the the the, the good white liberals up north or the oblivious white folks up north had either no idea or didn't really want to know what right. was really going on in in their own country because mm-hmm. it was terrifying and it was grotesque and it flew in the face of all the stuff they said they believed in Sunday school and when pledging allegiance. So. The camera stuff wasn't staged, but the people they put in front of the camera were very definitely dressed in their Sunday best. Mm-hmm. They were kids. They were nuns. There were there were rabbis, priests, and and civil rights leaders walking arm in arm, and that that picture, all dressed in their Sunday best. Yes, damn right. Yes. And that those pictures were for the cameras. The yep. intent was to arouse the anger of the nation by yep. just doing this very peaceful march and filming it. And filming the people around them losing their fucking minds and putting and, children in front of Bull Connor's fire right. hoses. Right. Well, they, you know, and, and having fire hoses and, and dogs loosed on people yeah. in front of cameras. And, and it yeah. was in a large measure the um, hubris and, and, and ob- obliviousness of Southern racists who just didn't think about it. This yeah. is just what we do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what, who the fuck cares if there's a camera? Nobody's going to stop us. This is our little slave empire. Or this is our Jim Crow right. empire. Nobody's going right. to come down we and have, make us We have different. a job to do, and it's to keep them down yeah. in their place. Yeah. 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 And, and so there were cameras, but they were not spontaneous. They weren't mm-hmm. cell phone cameras. They didn't just happen to be there when the incident happened. Yeah. And that's what's happening now. This is, that's what happens uh, happened with George Floyd. Yep. There, there are yep. cameras everywhere, and you can you can create your own history. You don't have to believe the official story because right. you were there, and and your narrative is now on film, and you can show yep. people this is really what happened. That bullshit stuff that cop just said—that's fucking nonsense. Yep. This is what happened, and it doesn't mean justice will prevail. It doesn't mean that everything is going to change. But it does mean that that, it, that the playing field has leveled somewhat. There is now technology on the side of people who are ready uh, to whip out their cameras and film shit when it goes down. And that yeah. is different. And you have that a country is that is aware of that, that's aware enough of that to say, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not right. We should do something about that. And they will still take to the streets. And they will still protest. We did. And, yeah. you know. It was it well, was... and and I also wanted to talk about um, the fact that the accident of overlapping histories and overlapping events that you know the the Arab oil embargo in 1973 mm-hmm. d- destroyed the economy for a lot of people. Destroyed what people thought the economy should be: cheap yeah. gas, cheap gas, was and all right. America yeah. as the number one manufacturer of automobiles, you know, and, and we run the world because of those two things. And there was an economic boom going on in 1965 for white people. There was absolutely. Life was really, really good in 1965 for white people. Yep. And so it is easy to understand why, uh, black men who had guns took to the roofs 
in in South Los Angeles. Absolutely. And, and wanted to flip over cars driven by white people. And we're the, mm-hmm. the fury that here, Amer- white America was, it was apartheid. I mean, there was, white America was enjoying the, the fruits of modern United States well, economy. And the, they in, weren't. In a, in a sense, the spoils of war. You know, the spoils we won. of war. And then here we go with the draft again. And who's being drafted? Mm-hmm. Not white college students. Who can get into UC Berkeley? Mm-hmm. It's it's ill educated because of the schools were bad mm-hmm. and underfunded in those communities, and and you're drafted and you're sent to Vietnam all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so yeah. so then seventy three comes and the and the Arab oil embargo, and that is at the time when you know there's a sense that you know you have uh, the Coke commercial. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Interracial advertising. Yes. Black people on television, Flip Wilson on television, and the economy is different for white people. Yes. And it's different for white people, not because black people got more or had more attention or had more equal rights, but they happened at about the same era. Yes. And it's so easy to see where the Archie Bunker type says, no, black people took my job. Black people took my wealth. Black right. people took my economy. Well, and, and, and if that you're... racial resentment of white people is so misplaced, and and not accepting black people as real Americans even today. I mean, you see that on Fox all the time. Yep. Democrats and anyone that votes with black people in South Carolina are not real Americans. Nope. nope. Um, you and I are always laughing about how triggering it must be for MAGAs every time we see a mixed race commercial. Oh yeah, and they're on. Yeah. They're on Fox. They're it's on like all the, the time. Tide commercial where the mom and dad are folding laundry for their triplets, right? Uh-huh. And dad's yep. black and mom's yep. white, or or vice versa, because that's what American families look like. And Tide knows that. Mm-hmm. You know, the Tide p- advertising people know what America looks like. They know who their audience is, and and who their customers are, and yet. God forbid a trans person should drink Bud Light. I mean, oh, it's just no flipping no. out. Well, and, and the first is... black president legalizes gay marriage. Oh, and what's the what's the great fear behind Joe Biden being reelected? It's he's not going to make it through his second term. You know, and what then? What we have a black woman running the country. With a black woman running, and, that, and then then it's over. Then it's all over. It's over. Everything's over. America's and, over for us. Yes. And so yes. And we did a whole. Even though she was, let's face it, from from the from the standpoint of being a liberal voter. Yeah. She was a cop. She was a cop. <laughs> she yeah. was a prosecutor in California. Yeah. yeah. Youngest child is like, she was a cop. She's a pro. Yes, I know. Yeah. She, no, she, the, she and, put... and youngest child just has, you know, the ACAB. I mean, yeah. it just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like, no, she, she put people in jail for her, pot. She, uh-huh. Her political awareness was crystallized by George Floyd. Yes, it was. Absolutely. It was. That's what, that is the inciting incident for her becoming a political person. Mm -hmm. In fact, before that she was quite resistant because that's all we talk about in our house and she right. doesn't want, they don't want to talk blah, about blah, that. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. Are we going to talk about this? Blah, blah, blah. Yes, we're yeah, going to do it again. Yeah. And yes, then George and Floyd happened. What? And her what friends happened? at school are black. And yep. what's going to happen to them the next time they are pulled over by a cop? Right. My friends. I have yeah, to be friends. involved. I have to be right. involved in this now because it's about well, and, me and my friends. Yeah. As, as I said somewhere previous in this podcast, this is what the, the, the fear of the KKK was well-founded. Yes. It was not insane they, they were terrified that if you get familiar with people that aren't like you if you get let black kids and white kids and be in the same classroom together they'll get married they'll yep. grow up and love each other that was they'll have George babies Wallace, with each other. right that he had no, brochures oh, about that you want your terrifying. daughter in school with him yeah because yeah because you could nothing was more frightening than yeah. the yeah. the your child falling in love with a black person and right. having a child that wasn't you know lily white even though you know, the entire South going back, go, this entire country going back to the 1700s is full of people that were the product of interracial, um, you can't call it marriage because there were no marriage you rights. You can call it rape in many cases. You, can call it rape. you sure but can. Yes. I mean, they're, 
I just got done listening to you know podcasts about the Haitian Revolution, the uh-huh. South American Revolution, about the, the degrees to which color was measured in people and what percentage yep. this and what percentage that. But it, it was such – our whole economy was built on slavery and yeah. our whole slave system was built on white supremacy and and letting black people and white people just live together and be together yeah. and act as yep. citizens together – destroys that and that's what at base they're terrified of you know we did a whole podcast on kamala harris vice presidents vice president the great vice presidents i have known and (laughs) you know who who are all these great vice presidents that she's not measuring up to who went on to be you know stars in their own right um and it's not her you know we think she's awesome most democrats think she's awesome the yeah. people who don't think she's awesome are the pundits. And what the pundits are going is, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people think she's doing a bad job. No, you mean racists. You mean yeah. your friends who are racist. You mean your people who are terrified who are because or you're terrified on their behalf that they're scared of black people. And, you know, I guess Black History Month has done its job because <laughs> it has created a whole bunch of terrified white people who are voting like for the worst person ever. They're willing to, to vote them. for a racist, rapist con man to right. keep white supremacy in the picture. Yeah. yeah. And 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 that the only reason for that is abject terror. Yeah. The, the rage and paranoia and terror. They're terrified they're losing this country. And every time they go watch television and see a Tide commercial, even on Fox, it's yep. true. So dry those tears, little ones. Soon, my little racist friends, you'll all be dead. You'll all go off to your graves and there'll be other people in the country. And you know what? If we're, if we're lucky, they will inherit the ideals of this country and not your filthy ideology. And that's all I have to say about that. Because one more thing I should probably say before we go, don't forget we need more Patreons to make this podcast fly. So if you can spare five bucks, please spare five bucks and visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash pro left pod. And really, thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for that. See you next time. See you next time. Professional Left Podcast, No Fair Remembering Stuff, Tuesday edition, is recorded under a Creative Commons license. Copyright 2024-25, DGBG Productions.